why did I choose mobility as a factor? And I was interested in uh, mobility because um, mobility, and I think I go back there a lot to James Scott, um, mobility is a factor where uh, producers are, yeah, that they have ways of escaping state control or uh, evading state control in some ways. And uh, that goes for shifting cultivators and that goes for pastoralists. Welcome to Co-Water Voice. We voice critical views and marginalize aspirations within the water development sector. CoWater is a postdoctoral research program funded by the European Union's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Program, Marie Skodowska Curie Action. CoWater examines conflicts over water resources and water territories and seeks to understand the conditions of possibility for turning conflicts into civil society co-production. I am Pratimi Vidyatmi Putri, the University of Kassel in Witzenhausen. In the second season of Co-Water Voice, in this beautiful summer 2022, I invite you to understand conflicts over water resources and water ecosystems in a critical manner. Not all forms of water stress and calamities, like water shortage, or low quality of supply will lead to social conflicts. At the other end, conflicts cannot be simplified as results of mismanagement. In this season, I have conversations with wonderful scholars who have been researching about water, environment and society to highlight some important concepts and approaches to help me in understanding conflicts. As our guest on this episode, we have Søren Köpke, my colleague at the Department of International Agriculture Policy and Environmental Governance at the University of Kassel. He currently works for the Aurora Project, which is a research cooperation among four universities in Lebanon, Morocco, Tunisia and Germany. In his works, he has been focusing on the social-ecological dynamics of food systems and international policy of environmental change. He has conducted an intensive field research in Sri Lanka for a long period among his other international fieldwork. His PhD thesis was defended at the Technische Universität Braunschweig in 2018 on drought, development and environmental conflicts in eight regions – Southern Madagascar, Inner Mongolia, Southern Malawi, Northeast Brazil, Sri Lanka, and Andhra Pradesh and Rajasthan in India. On this episode, we have a conversation about the political ecology of dryland regions and a methodological approach to research on water and water conflicts. 
In your PhD thesis, you begin with a global review about arid and semi-arid regions, which have a high degree of possibility for hydrologic drought. And then you continue by deconstructing this given category of arid and semi-arid regions with a combined framework informed by political economy and political ecology. With this framework, you narrow down a selection of case studies involving eight dryland regions in Sub-Saharan Africa, South and East Asia, and South America. I think the way you selected and justified these case studies for the PhD is very interesting by locating the cases within the reading of drought at the world scale. Rather than me summarizing your work, perhaps you can narrate better with some personal memories of that journey for selecting cases for the PhD research. Um, yes, actually case selection is of course for every major um, endeavor like a PhD, see this is a big issue, I think. And um, here I was actually, I started to look at a few cases beforehand. And uh, then in uh, the next step of my PhD, uh, I was uh, looking at, at a way uh, of a typology of uh, ordering the uh, case studies. And then based on this typology, selecting more case studies so I could have a comparison. And what I tried is to categorized dryland countries uh, from a selection of more than 40 countries that uh, were in question. What I did then was uh, to create a matrix of two dimensions, uh, which is mobility of uh, producers and uh, productivity of land. And uh, therefore, I uh, found dif different types of production systems, agricultural production systems, uh, because that uh, that's what I was interested in uh, to compare production systems. And uh, that was kind of the, the guiding dimension. So uh, I came up with this ma matrix and then uh, I had a production system of low productivity and low mobility that would be rain-fed sedentary agriculture, something that is... Uh, very, very common uh, in a lot of uh, countries, especially developing countries, and uh, low productivity and high mobility, uh, that would be shifting cultivation, which is often called a very primitive um, way of uh, cultivation, but uh, this is, of course, a bias. And then high productivity and low mobility would be, of course, irrigated agriculture, uh, that is, uh, of course, a very broad uh, description. There's many different ways of irrigation, but uh, that's what I looked at. And uh, high mobility and high productivity, uh, uh, I looked at pastoralism because pastoralism or semi-pastoralism uh, is a way of, yeah, of uh, making very good use of the productivity of land that cannot be used otherwise for cultivation, uh, often in, in grasslands. Uh, and a lot of uh, drylands are uh, uh, characterized by grasslands. So I had this matrix of that gave me four different uh, production systems. And then uh, to make it even more complicated, I looked at lower state capacity and higher state capacity. And then uh, I had a matrix with altogether eight uh, different case studies uh, that I looked at uh, at the sub-regional level because no, not, not all countries are uh, dry lands in their whole. Um, a lot of countries are uh, 
have dryland regions. Uh, and also in my um, in my case selection, excluded cases where I thought that uh, agricultural production was not most important. Uh, for example, rancher states, uh, oil rancher states uh, in the Middle East uh, that are of course drylands, but uh, don't rely on agricultural production as um, as a major economic factor. Uh, so that was my case selection. Uh, and uh, in hindsight, I would say it was a bit insane to, to have eight different uh, case study regions with totally different characteristics. Uh, on the other hand, uh, it, I think it reaped some reward because I really could look at the diversity of cases. Now, something I should add maybe is why did I choose mobility as a factor? And I was interested in uh, mobility because um, mobility and I think I go back there a lot to James Scott. Um, mobility is a factor where uh, producers are, yeah, that they have ways of escaping state control or uh, evading state control in some ways. And uh, that goes for shifting cultivators and that goes for pastoralists. These are people that are, uh, yeah, I think in political anthropology are, yeah, they are theorized as people uh, that don't have such a close connection to the state and for example in the discussion on pastoralists uh, that's a very all across the globe where we have pastoralist societies that is uh, very important. Uh, I think the more uh, sedentary types are more interesting uh, so rainfed agriculture and irrigated agriculture because that is where um, water conflicts are probably uh, more important sometimes uh, but also uh, in the pastoralist cases, uh, there was a lot of um, incidents of um, water conflict. I looked at water conflict and land conflicts. Um, and also in the shifting cultivation case, I uh, had a case where uh, dam construction was uh, uh, of high importance. Yeah, that, that was basically um, the research design. And uh, then I started looking at the different cases. And uh, what helped me a lot is uh, uh, the Environmental Justice Atlas, which is a project uh, hosted at the Autonomous uh, University of Barcelona in Spain, in Catalonia. And uh, that is basically a large data set of um, environmental conflicts over different uh, types of uh, um, yeah, environmental, social, ec ecological problems. Um, and uh, this served uh, as a first uh, starting point, as a point of departure, looking at uh, yeah, different instances of uh, conflict there. And then uh, when I had uh, selected or, or identified conflicts in my case study regions, I looked at them more intimately. I think it's very interesting to, to, to highlight on this mobility because Mobility to me sounds um, well refers to also formation of territory, and then when 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 settling down is process of territorializing, and then when people in in move, you know, and and the water water moves always, right? and and I'm I'm very much also interested how you also put this uh, important angle on lower state capacity. Maybe you can, you can explain a bit more about this. State capacity, of course, is a theoretical approach that comes very much uh, from, the, from the field of development studies, where one looks at uh, the way that states are able to 
provide a basic human uh, security or provide basic uh, human services such as uh, health, uh, food security, um, uh, overall security, uh, education, and so on. And the general idea is, of course, that lower GDP goes together with uh, lower state capacity. So um, I think uh, it might be a bit of a very raw, um, very raw structure uh, or very raw categorization to fruit even to uh, categorize con countries. But uh, for the convenience of um, of case selection, I uh, wanted to uh, have a look if um, of if uh, emerging uh, economies like the BRICS countries uh, and lower income countries uh, how they would compare um, in terms of uh, state capacity and uh, yeah also the ability of the state to mediate or to to manage uh, conflicts over water and land. The political ecology lens, as you have used in your work help to analyze the socially produced drought, highlighting the processes that drought-like conditions or scarcity are mediated by sociopolitical or institutional factors. And of course, the role of the state is, is one of this uh, configuration. As you have made the comparative analysis across eight dry lands during your PhD research, perhaps you could illustrate some stark contrast or pattern of similarities in the way scarcity is contested among other societal environmental problems. Uh, I mean by contestation of scarcity is that also that you mentioned that there are some countries that uh, not the whole country is dry land, but only some partial regions of it. So how then, in what ways and through which institutions, the state of being in scarcity is acknowledged by wider public or accepted collectively? In this context of water stress, how would everyone have the same perception that they were fa yeah, facing scarcity? Then I, I can see very much that the role of the state is mediating this, uh, this perception of scarcity and abundance on the other hand and or um, distribution and the rights for demanding more for particular communities etc yeah maybe i start with uh, because i find this quite interesting the notion of um um drought and drought management um, and uh, state capacities uh, with regards to pastoralism because there we have very stark contrasts um and I looked at Burkina Faso, which is in uh, Western Africa, a young uh, country that was once part of the French colonial empire. And the northern area is uh, within the Sahel region, so it's uh, very, very dry and um, affected by uh, infrequent uh, precipitation. And uh, pastoralism is uh, very, very... Uh, very uh, widespread uh, form of, of uh, production there because basically uh, it, the land uh, is so dry that it doesn't uh, lend itself to um, rain-fed uh, agriculture. So what happens then is uh, that uh, seasonal uh, migration of the pastoralists leads them uh, into other parts of the country. So more, their homelands are uh, in northern Burkina Faso, but uh, they frequently, their transhumans uh, routes fre frequently lead them to other parts of the country and uh, which are not technically drylands. Um, 
But uh, that is where the conflict starts between pastoralists and uh, agriculturalists. Often quite violent conflict. What happens here, and uh, it's a pattern, pattern that can be observed uh, in a lot of other regions, especially uh, in the African context, uh, the state more or less always takes uh, takes the position of the farmers and not of the pastoralists. So uh, pastoralists are really discriminated against. And in cases of conflict between these two groups of small-scale producers, between farmers and pastoralists, and uh, these conflicts tend to arise very often, and they tend to escalate there now and then and turn into really severe violence where things really escalate. Uh, and uh, often uh, violence against the pastoralists is met with impunity. So uh, the, there's really no investigation uh, against the perpetrators. Uh, in a few cases, um, pastoralists uh, were protected by police officers, but often the perpetrators uh, were perpetrating violence against uh, pastoralist families got away without any kind of form of punishment. Uh, so this is a problem. Looking back, back at scarcity, uh, of course, these conflicts are framed as uh, in an environmental security way as uh, conflicts between uh, different groups over scarce resources. But I'm not so sure altogether that this is always the case or if it's uh, not uh, that if these kind of conflicts are not also characterized by breakdown of institutions, uh, breakdowns of, of mechanisms of, of mediation or a conflict resolution uh, in societies, politicization of those uh, conflicts uh, also in the context of, of these global war on terror. Um, and uh, so it's quite complex, these kind of conflicts, and they cannot only be framed as uh, ethno-political conflicts between different ethnics, ethnic groups or as environmental resource conflicts. This is a very shallow kind of um, interpretation, I think, of these conflicts. Uh, but uh, as I said, I wanted to highlight that the state really isn't on the side of the pastoralists and that this is a problem, um, a social justice problem. And uh, the other case uh, in China, uh, we more or less um, have the same condition that the state is not on the side uh, of the um, pastoralists, but here we don't have pastoralist farmer conflicts. I looked at Inner Mongolia, which is uh, a large uh, region uh, in the northeast of China, of the People's Republic of China. Um, and here um, the pastoralists, the herders of Mongol uh, ethnicity really come in conflict with the state itself and uh, with state-supported companies. And uh, the main problem here is coal, coal mining, um, coal transportation. And this, this uh, contributes to the degradation of the, of the grasslands that are very important uh, to the pastoralists. And also we, we have a water dimension here because this kind of industrialization of Inner Mongolia really takes a high toll on, on the water resources. Mining uh, is associated with uh, large-scale uh, pollution and the animals get sick uh, when water is polluted or when dust from, from coal factories lies on the land. In principle, the 
state-sponsored development strategy uh, of industrializing these parts, uh, extracting um, extracting minerals, extracting rare earth, extracting coals. It's very it's very bad for uh, the, the pastoralists and the, their traditional way of life. And in addition, uh, there's uh, a movement uh, much discussed in political ecology of uh, enclosures of, of uh, pastoral grounds, um, which more or less doesn't allow the, the pastoralists to, to keep on their traditional way of living. They, they are driven off their, their homelands uh, under the, yeah, it's called uh, grassland protection. In the name of uh, uh, landscape conservation, uh, the farmers are really, uh, not the farmers, the, the pastoralists are really driven of their traditional um, grazing grounds uh, and are not allowed in. That's a, a process that has been going on for several uh, decades now and, and makes it very difficult for them. So there's large scale, as, as far as it is allowed, there's large scale uh, protest against these kind of measures by the pastoralists uh, against um, these state-sponsored measures and against environmental pollution. And this, of course, creates a lot of political tension, uh, which uh, the, the party state won't allow, really. So this, this is a couple of examples. I think that really worked out to see that um, state capacity plays a role because in Burkina Faso, the state is uh, more like in the background, uh, doesn't act uh, to mediate conflict, whereas in the Chinese case, we have a state that really tries to control uh, not only uh, matters of conflict, but also all kinds of development. I think your cases have uh, explained a lot that... Um apart from the biophysical conditions of dryland regions that significantly matter, we could see that what the scarcity and what the conflicts there were socially manufactured. Now I would like to also ask you, perhaps beyond your PhD research, your whole trajectory of research and, and writing. Yeah, because the complexity is like very like layers of, of, of complexities and dense, and especially if we want to to talk about scale in terms of comparisons of cases, even you know, involving different countries. Do you have a particular angle that, that you really like, or let's say that informing you throughout the research? Because you know, it's always for students, master students, the beginners uh, in their PhD stage, there are always um, different kind of concepts that. Uh, might operate together in in, in our own head, uh, and then it's, it's 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 always it's sometimes competing uh, or not really helping each other. Uh, these concepts that operating together, but on the other hand, concepts uh, are not the only things in research. The empirical has also have voice no? that we we can mm. convey the the reality in a rather fair. Manners, because you also say that you have explained that this uh, lens, uh, only environmental lens, doesn't sound so just in explaining the reality and etc. Maybe you could uh, say a bit more in it, and in in what way it's also maybe can highlight uh, particular agencies on the field that could mediate 
not just state institutions via the communities, but it could be maybe other kind of agencies. Maybe, yeah, uh, <laughs> this is a bit long questions, but yes. probably it's nice to, to have a second part of our conversation more on this yeah. direction. Well, when I say that I'm very much influenced by political ecology, then I say that uh, what interests me uh, the most is uh, the power dynamics in social environmental conflict uh, over environmental resources. Po power, I think, is a very, uh, very important conceptual lens. Power itself, I don't think, is a concept, but um, the way that uh, power is enacted and uh, the way that so-called human nature relations are always driven by by power asymmetries is very important to me and I think it's very important to the whole political ecology dialogue. Starting from that, I think there's uh, several concepts that are very interesting and we briefly talked in the beginning, we talked about territorialization, uh, which uh, is a concept by uh, Fondergeist and Peluso, uh, Nancy Peluso, a uh, very, very interesting uh, political ecologist that uh, based in California that also worked a lot on, on Indonesia. Territorialization is uh, something that, a concept uh, that is very much prominent in uh, political geography, I think, but uh, it probably could be fertile also for other different kinds of um, environmental uh, social science. And uh, territorialization is uh, has to do with uh, um, the power of the state and the way uh, it is inscribed into the landscape, inscribed into natural um, frontiers, uh, into commodity frontiers. Um, it also has to do with, with uh, creating, with producing knowledge uh, on uh, certain territories, but also on securing these territories and policing these territories. So it's it's a very complex process. I seem to like this kind of complexities. Um, and um, yeah, we can, can see how um, development also in the rural sphere also always has a territorialization aspect. Um, and uh, how this, uh, knowledge aspect of territorialization is also uh, quite contested. Um, for example, I had this, um, I, coming briefly back to my PhD thesis, uh, I ha had this case in Rajasthan, Northwest India, where uh, uh, farmers protested uh, over long, long years, they protested against uh, a Coca-Cola bottling factory because they said the, the groundwater was depleted through um, the uh, uh, beverage factory owned by Coca-Cola India Limited. Um, and uh, Coca-Cola claimed that uh, it wasn't their, um, their water extraction for uh, their beverage production, but it was uh, the activities of the farmers themselves that was responsible for the depletion of groundwater. So um, this kind of claims, of course, uh, get into conflict because um, these are different, uh, yeah, different um, claims to the nature of the biophysical world. Um, so this kind of uh, this kind of knowledge gets weaponized or, or, or becomes uh, contested in this kind of 
conflict and uh, this is of course something that also happens in processes of territorialization that claims uh, about the, the natural science basis of, of uh, so-called resources or uh, territories um, become politicized. Uh, that's something that I find very interesting. And this is, of course, um, yeah, that's part of a critical outlook on um, environmental uh, conflicts or environmental uh, processes, I think. And that's what I gain a lot uh, from uh, political ecology to have this kind of critical uh, look. I think uh, what really happened to me, and uh, I'm glad you mentioned that, uh, is that uh, I was overwhelmed uh, by the empirics uh, at some uh, some stage or another. And um, we can, when we do a research design, we can come up with very um, neat categories, uh, but then we see on the ground uh, that things are much more complicated and uh, there's not a neat separation, for example, of, of production systems that, uh, for example, in, up to the 70s, people uh, looked at rural societies from a Marxist perspective, talked about peasants and rural landless workers and so on, and, and middle peasants and, and uh, large-scale landholders. When you look uh, on the ground now, you find that this kind of class politics are much more fluent often than uh, they are uh, thought to be. There's a whole range of, of different, um, different actors there. Um, and also uh, something that I find very important is um, the influence of uh, remote uh, actors of, uh, for example, international companies. In Sri Lanka, we looked, uh, my colleagues and, and myself, we, we looked at a case and uh, that found its way into the PhD thesis as well. As well. Um, we looked at a case where uh, there was large-scale uh, evidence of water pollution through uh, artificial uh, fertilizers and pesticides, so chemical inputs. And of course, there was uh, a large-scale interest in, um, in applying this kind of um, chemical inputs um, through multinational uh, companies who uh, uh, sold this in the countryside. And, uh, of course, there's much to say uh, about using this kind of inputs in terms of productivity, but there's also uh, a lot of environmental risks associated with this kind of uh, production system. So um, a demand is maybe created through international actors, uh, through development companies, uh, through uh, the states, extension services by the, by the state by international donor organizations or NGOs. There's broader or, or longer processes like uh, the drive towards so-called green revolutions. On the demand side, I think there's uh, uh, in a globalized world economy uh, that uh, is very interesting how, um, for example, demand uh, often some kind of health fads or so in, in the, the so-called global north uh, drive uh, conflicts and drive scarcities in the global south. Uh, when we look at 
these kind of uh, notions of uh, water wars in Latin America, uh, in avocado farming, for example, uh, this driven by um, consumption fats, uh, consumer fats in, in the global north, uh, where uh, uh, health awareness drives this uh, interest in avocado as, as a superfood. Uh, this is very interesting, this kind of entanglements, uh, and this is also for, for in my uh, perspective, also uh, part of a political ecology of the global food system. This uh, kind of connections I find very, very interesting, and uh, it's good to highlight them. But we must, we must uh, also look uh, at this in a nuanced way, not only in this kind of schematic uh, the North exploits the South, of course, the North exploits the South, but uh, there's also ways local and uh, complex and historically shaped processes at work here. In this conversation, we have talked uh, a lot about, well, more or less a methodological approach to research on water and water conflicts. And I realized that our trajectories are quite, pretty much different in a way that uh, the scope of our research, for example, I, I always like to really uh, scrutinizing the micro uh, dynamics. So I always, well, most of the time have single case studies or maybe a little bit more of comparative or complementary studies. And you always have these eyes of, let's say, world connections, world scale connections. And I wonder, um, in what way you think that this kind of two two approaches? Of course, there are not two not only two approaches in research about water. We always think progress in research and and progress in improving the world has to be collective uh, works. And and uh, if we would combine this kind of two different kind of, of research, you probably have some yeah some reflections on it and uh, mm. would be great to to hear um i i think uh cross scale uh inquiries and cross scale research is really very important yeah probably it's uh, also there then there and then important to take a step back and uh question the way uh, we do research not you and me, uh, but uh, all together in the environmental social sciences or in, yeah, uh, in lots of the social scientists, it's very small teams, I think, that do, do research. And um, what I find lacking is, uh, and this has something to do with financial support, maybe a kind of more ambitious program of uh, thinking things together. It's often not the case. People do their research for their PhDs, maybe on single cases, uh, single country studies, uh, maybe some cross country study like I did, maybe just one community or one site or uh, historical topic where they look at longitudinal studies but it's often not combined in a more creative way and i think i think it would be very interesting to look at the way that these micro politics that you are interested in combine to to more cross-scale effects uh, of uh, the word political economy and also to um yeah, political ecology in a way that that understandings of uh, the natural world of, of uh, natural processes uh, for lack for a lack of better words, um, how they differ so much between uh, different countries and regions, 
And that's not only the north and the south, it's also the urban and the rural. Yeah, I think we, we need more research that is transcending scale and uh, that things um, processes together. That's something I find interesting. But then again, uh, it's a question, um, what kind of theoretical lenses do we use? And are they, are they really compatible or, or complementary? Or are they not? Yeah, that's something I really like to work on in the future. I think this kind of cross-scale uh, research, not not only geographic scale or political scale in, in the sense of village, region, state, greater region, continental, uh, but also in terms of looking at different time scales. We have not talked yet about gender aspects, something that I, I really missed in my PhD thesis to, to really look at uh, gender issues, but I think these are very, very important uh, when looking at rural social ecological dynamics. Uh, also, it's a question of method, I think. Uh, when you said you often use uh, single case studies and, and look at one side, uh, it's also a question of how much you are embedded into the um, local yeah, the local region, something that has to do with linguistic scale, uh, skills and with local connections. Because I, as a Western uh, mid-age male, of course, have a lot of resources maybe on my hand, but a lot of resources I don't have. I'm not as embedded in in uh, in some local. I always have to to uh, think about the local context and and read a lot of, upon it and and have local inter how you call it uh, local uh, gatekeepers or gate openers that help me what i try to avoid is this kind of parachuting uh, into a country and and um, yeah 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 that that is quite uh, there's a lot of things uh, to to think about um, yeah I, I quite like this reflection because even if i talk about a single case study in the sense of the unit is city and then i talk about jakarta but within jakarta they're like a wide array of uh, diversity of communities and, and even every compound of communities also bring particularities. But at the same time, yes, we have to realize about all this global power that um, play on. And, and this is really affecting policies as you, you have also mentioned very clearly about international funding in the development sector and how the state relates to multinational companies and so on. So I think perhaps collaborations that among researchers <laughs> that, I mean, there are lots of knowledge have been done in the water sector. And I, I, I think there has to be a way to, to harvest more of what have been done before we are immediately to kind of extract new research data and all these things. Great. So thank you very much for, for this interesting talk. Mm -hmm.